What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Rapping with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelhammer. So, tonight is going to be a treat because we both have uh, we have both uh, Dr. Sanjay Yoshi as well as Mike Paletta back on the show. What's happening, fellas? Another night in paradise. <laughs> How you doing, Sanjay? I'm just happy that I taught my last class for the semester. Oh, you're beaming. I could see that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so let me just quickly uh, remind everybody who uh, we uh, are talking to tonight. I'm sure there's not many folks out there that don't know um, Sanjay and Mike. Um, both these fellows are icons in the hobby, so I'm really thrilled to have them together once again. Sanjay has written many articles about reef keeping. He has been a speaker at several National Marine Aquarium Society meetings and local clubs. In real life, Sanjay is a professor of industrial and manufacturing engineering at Penn State University. Mike, too, has written a lot of articles for many publications. He has also published two books, The New Marine Aquarium and Ultimate Marine Aquariums. And Mike has also been a speaker at many reefkeeping conferences in the U.S. and around the world. And this past September, Mike was named the 2022 Mazna Award recipient. And I think uh, Sanjay might have had uh, a little assist in, in the, the nomination there, I, I believe. But um, before we start chatting with... Yes. Yes. The checks are still going to Sanjay <laughs> weekly for that, I, and I appreciate it. Um, before we start chatting with Sanjay and Mike, I want to thank the sponsors for this show, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. I really appreciate them supporting this live stream, and I also appreciate all you folks out there watching and tuning in and, and your support. As always, comments and questions are always welcome, and um, please hit that like button and subscribe to the channel. More folks will find the stream. We'll have a, uh, a more interesting and engaging conversation tonight. So, fellas, what's going on? How, um, how are your tanks doing these days? Uh, things have settled down, I think, for both of us after kind of a rocky 2022. Uh, we both probably had six to nine months of uh, grief and aggravation, but for whatever reason, they've, they've both settled down. I saw Sanjay's tank about six weeks ago, and it was really starting to come back. And mine has finally settled down and really coming back as well. I mean, people wonder, why do they come back? You've been doing this long enough. You shouldn't have problems. Well, there's always something. There is always something. <laughs> so, um, always. Yeah. It's, if it's not one thing, it's another. So, um, Sanjay, I know you you had some issues as well, right, with your uh, with your tank, and it, it's it was a mystery. It was I guess it was a mystery for both of you guys, right? Um, <clears throat> let's uh, let's kind of like go back before you know some of the larger problems were happening. Did did you guys like see any signs of trouble? Were were corals like kind of faded, losing a little color? Were you not getting the polyp extension that you typically were getting, or were you just seeing some RTN and STN events uh, randomly? I mean, it, my issues, I think I can kind of pinpoint them. I let my parameters on some of the parameters, like the nitrates and phosphates, get way too high. And by way too high, I mean, when I'm assessing with the HANA, it was maxing out Whoa. at 75. When I cut it in half, maxing out at right, it was still maxing out. So my nitrates, because of my stupid calculations and mistakes and dosing, I dumped way too much nitrates into my tank. And <clears throat> I'm now convinced that 
part of the problem was really high nitrates and phosphates also were, were quite high. So clearly, you know, one of my visual signs of a thing doing well is that there's growth yeah. tip of the acros. Mm -hmm. And when you start, when you stop seeing growth tips on the acros, something is wrong, right? And I've reached that point where growth tips essentially were non-existent on the acros. And then slowly, slowly you start seeing other issues of RTN, slow RTN, not rapid RTN. And uh, at that point, I said, you know what? Maybe things have gotten out of hand. I should bring the nitrates and phosphates. How long down. were you um, were you elevated? Do you think of the nitrates and phosphates? I mean, I always thought you you kept those elevated for years. Yeah, I always kept them high. They were always in the forties, fifties, in nitrates. You know, and phosphates were kind of like they were almost close to one. Like something, you know, but when it got to double, <laughs> double of that or more than that, clearly it's a problem. So I got into this whole thing where I was going to bring these levels down slowly and see what happens. And definitely bringing those levels down and looking at it now, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of improvement in my tank. So I'm convinced that really high levels are not good, right? I've had success with up to 40. Yeah, which is crazy. Nitrates, but... but maybe 150 <laughs> is not good. <laughs> But what was still remarkable. So right now, I mean, I, again, doing this over the over the last year or so, my nitrates now don't even go above one. I think I've gone to the pendulum has swung way the other way. Right, but I'm seeing good growth. Definitely, every single acro has sprouted in the last um, since Macna, so by the last three months. There's been a huge difference in the tank, you know. So yes, it definitely is. I would like the nitrates to kind of stabilize mm -hmm. around ten, um, but right now it's still going down, which is interesting because when you think about it, I always had low nitrates. Always low. Always. They used to be, you know, low. Not too high. I mean, I consider 30 kind of reasonably low. <laughs> yeah. And it got to the point where they were below one when I started dosing nitrates. And that's where I miscalculated and I bumped it up way too high over a period of time. Um, so now they're back. They're back low enough and uh, things are looking good. So. Well, there's a sweet spot. Definitely, I'm going to raise this. Sorry. No. Sorry. What I was going to say, as an outsider that visits you every quarter or so, in that time, there was only one period where you ever had any algae, and you had that bryopsis outbreak. But you, you never have a speck of algae, even when you used to keep the uh, phosphates at uh, you know off the scale and nitrates at 100. You still have never had algae issues like everybody else typically has. And which is really interesting in looking at your tank and looking at the pictures I have of your tank. There's never algae issues. No, no, occasional cyano issues, but not very consistent to blame anything for causing the cyanide. And so, uh, Sanjay, you know? 
Even when I had these high nitrates and phosphates, I had no cellulose. You know, and now that I've brought them down, there's still no cyano right now, right? But there are times when I'll get cyano and I can't explain why it's there now when it wasn't there before, right? Um, let me just thank Zubin for that super chat. Really appreciate the, uh, that, that super chat. Um, so, Sanjay, re refresh everybody's memory in terms of what you're doing currently for nutrient uh, reduction. Are you just relying on the corals to help export the, the, uh, the nitrates from phosphates? I was for a long time dosing vodka. vodka. Yeah. Which helps. Okay. And that did bring the phosphates down. But interestingly, when I stopped dosing, the nitrates still keep going down. I mean, I do run an algae, uh, algae uh, scrubber. Are you too. currently using that? Because I'm, I'm still using it. Yeah. Yeah. But definitely over the years, I mean, I've found, I mean, at least right now, I'm finding that I've stopped dozing. I've stopped dozing since about two, three months ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the nitrates still keep going down, right? So at this point, I think the algae scrubber is able to keep the nitrates, you know, low. But in the past, when the, the nitrates were that high, the algae scrubber right. couldn't do it by itself. So dosing the vodka definitely. What about phosphates? But it doesn't help a whole lot with phosphates, right? Phosphates, I've been just using GFO to kind of keep them in control. Go ahead, Mike. Uh, right now they're they're sitting at one point two, nitrate sitting at like one. Or wow, that's way that down region. for you. I know. Yeah. For me, it's way. You're down. also not running your lights yeah. at the full yeah. capacity like you were. You turning them down a little bit. No, my lights are also, they're not yet at full capacity. Because with mm -hmm. these low levels, I'm not comfortable pushing them to full capacity. Mm. So right now they're running at about 80% of what I normally used to run. Because my experience always has been that if you want to run the lights at full capacity, then you need a little more nitrates and phosphates. Yeah, and and Sanjay, you're um, you're doing like the full spectrum, 100 percent each channel, right? That's when you're running full. That's when you're going full. Well, uh, they're more. not no longer 100%, yeah. they're 80 yeah, yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. You say in terms of dosing the vodka, that uh, mm -hmm. that was kind of like how you're helping to um, you know bring down some uh, some nutrient levels. I I have uh, I've been dosing bacteria, and that's been kind of like my primary way to help control uh, nutrients. I um. I think also a lot of the corals are helping with the uh, with the nitrate and the phosphate uh, exporting the uh, those levels. So in a, in once the corals start growing, you know they they consume. Yeah, stuff. I've had like the opposite problem. So I had a um, and Mike, we'll uh, we'll we'll definitely get to uh, to what you did with your uh, with your system and and your uh, your treatment. But um, I I had an issue with my peninsula tank. You know that the tank was going gangbusters. It still is going great, <clears throat> and. I had an issue with um, extremely low phosphates to uh, the point that it was, I was getting, you know, zero readings on my test kits and, um, you know, ICP test analyses were, were showing near zero as, uh, as well. So, and, you know, over the last um, four or five months, I would have like a random RTN or STN event. And uh, it was, it was just kind of weird, right? I mean, all of a sudden you just like look at the tank and, 
A coral that was thriving the day before is like gone. Is totally yep. gone. Or yep. you look at another coral and you kind of like turn your head because like, hold it, something doesn't look right with that coral. And, you know, for me, it was kind of like the polyps were retracted a little bit. I'm like, is my regal angelfish kind of like nipping at that coral? Yeah, that's that's got to be what's going on. He's the, the regal's nipping at that coral. And then like a week later, that coral is like starting to STN on me. And, um, <clears throat> you know, so it got to a point where every... It was happening more and more frequently in that tank for me with the uh, with the SPS, <clears throat> and it was almost like you were kind of afraid to look into the tank and look too too hard, mm -hmm. because then you yep. would see like, oh geez, that's that's doing the same thing. That's that's yep. it's scary. Right. You don't want to look at the tank. You're afraid, and right. um, so I I was kind of um, you know looking for a, a solution but i think what happened <clears throat> for me was the extremely low phosphate had stressed out my corals and and so you know i think we could talk about this there is like so sanja you were saying you had this whole um high very high nutrient uh, issue that stressed out your corals i think for me it was like the extremely low phosphates that caused the stress and so then your corals right are are becoming more um you know prone to a, a coral pathogen i guess Right, if if they don't, uh... I mean, I don't know if it's a pathogen or it's just intercellular decay from, you know, dealing with these high levels of things or really low levels of things, starving the coral. One one thing I forgot to ask so, you, Sanjay, as you've seen your nitrates and phosphates go down, has you have you seen your alkalinity consumption go up? That's a really hard one to. To pinpoint, you know, partly because I'm not sure I'm maintaining a consistent dosing level of alkalinity, right? If it was constant dosing, I could tell you that, yeah, it's changing, right? So it's hard, that's why it's hard for me to say. But growth is what I look for. Right, growth and growth tips. Am I getting growth tips on every single quarter? And right now the answer is yes. Okay. And it's always, and this is my observation with corals, when there are no growth tips on that coral, I can guarantee you within six months the coral <laughs> is gone. It's gone. If the growth tips don't come back, the yeah. coral is gone. It's stagnated. Yeah, they either thrive it's, or die. It's gone. It'll be gone. I I I um yeah. I, I I do uh Agree, Mike. In terms of, uh, I I do look at my alkalinity in terms of where that's going, and if it um, if the alkalinity is like all of a sudden starting to rise, you know, a lot to me that means that the corals are not, um, you know, consuming what they had been consuming in the past, yep. and that's like a red. That's assuming your reactor is putting yeah. the exact same amount. Yeah. Which often is not mm. the case. Yeah. See, with the reactor, that's my problem, right? I mean, if it was really, really constant, I could tell you. Right. So if the, you know, with all these reactors and the one I'm using, you know, you got a dosing pump that's feeding it and the dosing tube suddenly, you know, doesn't really, over time, you start to see a drop in the amount of fluid the dosing tube can handle. And, you know, so is the alkalinity dropping because of that or is it the corals? Right. So it, it's that that's my that's my dilemma right now at least with 
agreeing to that statement that I can tell you from the alkalinity consumption that my corals are growing. Right? To me, visually, corals are growing when there's new growth tips that makes on sense. every single coral. So, yeah, I, I look yeah. for the growth tips, but I also, since I'm using a doser rather than a reactor, I can see when I have to bump up the amount being dosed in. I mean, when I was going through the STN debacle, I was only doing 100 milliliters a day of uh, part one of alkalinity. Now I'm back up to 180. So it has gradually increased by, you know, 80% or whatever. So from that standpoint, I, I'm seeing the growth tips. But when things were bad, the alkalinity consumption was significantly less. I mean, that, that does yeah. make sense. Yeah. Right? That when you're getting one good growth, and if your alkalinity is is constant, then you're going to get better consumption. So, um, all right. So, so it could be a coral is growing better, and yeah, that's consumed. Yeah, that's right? true. I mean, right. So, I mean, there, there's too many other variables in here. Yeah. Right. So, all right. So, Sanjay, what I'm hearing is that you believe your troubles stem from the increase in nitrates and phosphates, and bringing those down seems to have um, stabilized the situation. Is that a fair statement? I am also going to go out on a limb and say that I had stopped doing water mm -hmm. changes for a long time, right? And trace element depletions could have also contributed to yeah. it, right? So I had too many contributing factors here. There's always a lot of variables. Right, so I knew I, I mean, for one reason, running high nitrates and phosphates that was a problem. Secondly, you know, maybe there's trace elements running out also. Okay. And the reason I'm going to tell you why I'm, I think that is a contributing factor, I have always run my lights at 100%. Right? Full, full capacity, I run my radiants 100%. There came a time where the corals were kind of bleaching out, and I've never had that issue with lighting. That's when I kind of started to switch my thinking and going, okay, you know, why are my corals not being able to handle this light levels when they were in the past? They had no issue with the light level. Right? My nitrates were high for sure, phosphates were high, but that shouldn't be affecting the corals from the light perspective. And uh, I did run some ICP tests and I started dosing iron and manganese. And for the first time in my life, after 30 years of doing this, right, I noticed a difference. Right? And then I started questioning, okay, why is it that now I'm seeing a depletion of Trace elements when in the past mm. I never saw this. Right? I mean, I, people gave me free samples of lots of of their, you know, dosing stuff. Is that dose this, dose that? I never saw a direct correlation of me dosing anything with improvements in my tank. Right? And going back, I look at it and I go, you know, I, I, there's certain things that I've changed that could impact the amount of trace elements available. I went to a Destaco reactor several years ago. Right? They use pure marble as a media. In the past, I always used Gassam reactor with coral 
fragments as media. So now all of a sudden, this reactor is no longer adding any elements that were embedded in my coral skeletons, right? So that explains maybe to some extent that, okay, now you know, you definitely have no additions of any trace elements. My coral skeletons were doing that for me in the past. Okay. So again, this, this is my hypothesis right now, right? that I cut off any trace element input that I had and I stopped doing water changes and maybe that accumulated to the point where trace elements became addition. Interesting. What what about the um, the lag time? I mean, you said that uh, at one point you you had um, not seen much in terms of results when you were um, you know replenishing trace elements. I never saw any results. Is, in the past. Is, could it be a potentially a longer lag time before you kind of see results? Or do you think with trace elements, that should be something that'd be more instantaneous or not instantaneous, but more, um, you know, recent after the addition? I was surprised at how fast something's changed. When I started dumping in iron and manganese. Those were the two that I started dumping in. I didn't care too much about the other ones. And I could definitely see for the first time in my life that there's a difference. Visual difference. Yeah. Right? Uh, so that convinced me that, you know what, maybe there was a trace element issue. Also, there is a trace element issue. But I bet you they iron. In the past, I was very religious about doing yeah. water changes. I had a calcium reactor that was using calcium media, you know, coral well, media. It, so it, they were adding all the trace elements I ever needed. It's interesting, though, that you're adding iron and manganese, and those are the two most of the trace elements. The other ones sort of linger. Those go and gone. So it's interesting that you saw. Yeah, I mean, you can, I mean, I've done the iron stuff so many times, and I don't, it never shows up. Yeah, on you never ICP. see it on ICP. No. But I add a lot Me of too. iron. Right? Yeah, I'm actually. So it, it, it never shows up. It either gets consumed or it just, you know, disappears somehow by magic. Yeah. <laughs> How, uh, what, what, what's your dosing regime, uh, Sanjay, in terms of iron? Do you add it like one time a day? Do you add it, um, you know? No, I, I, I put everything on a dosing pump now. And I spread the dosing yeah. all over the whole day. Yeah. What are you noticing now? Yeah. Like five just milliliters, ten milliliters a day? Well, it depends on the concentration of my solution. Are you making up your own iron solution? Yeah, I, I make okay. up all my solutions. The chemistry is not that hard. It's math, actually, yeah. at that point. You are an engineer, so you should be able to do the math. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's not difficult. I mean, I encourage everybody to do at least do the math and see how it Save works. Save a little money. Yeah, more than the money, you learn a lot about things, right? Yeah, you do it yourself. Sure. I, you know, I always like to know what's the parts per million of everything that I'm adding. When I make my own solutions, I know exactly where it is. Okay? I would like the manufacturers to also tell me What's the parts per mm. million in their bottles? Yeah, that's not good. Because I like, I, you know, so if I want to raise it by a certain amount, 
it's easy to do that math. Yeah. Right? It's not that difficult. <clears throat> How much did I put? And, you know, I'm, oftentimes I'm surprised I could add the whole bottle. <laughs> it does nothing to my tank. Right? There's a few manufacturers that do that. They actually put the parts per million concentration on their bottles. I think that's really good. Really good. Because you can, it's a simple equation to balance out, you know, uh, how much you need to add once you know the concentration of what you're adding. So, um, Mike, let uh, I, I want to get to you in terms of uh, your situation and how you um, rectified it. Let me um, let me finish my um, my story because I did reach out to you a few weeks ago in, in a cry for help. Uh, kind of like, you know, I had the same like I described that kind of same issue that that you and Sanjay had losing some corals, and um, it was happening with more frequency. So I didn't have the guts though to do the Cipro uh, treatment that that. Uh, that you had done. So I reached out to my buddy, Chris Meckley at ACI, and, and he recommended this, this treatment called oxalinic acid. And I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, going to talk in detail about it because I don't know a lot about it. Like, uh, Chris does. I'm going to have Chris on <clears throat> in a couple of weeks so we can kind of, uh, get into more in-depth discussion. You know, my, my rudimentary, uh, rudimentary, um, understanding is that the oxalinic acid is a, um, is a treatment that you would use to treat disease for koi. Okay. Right. And it targets the gram positive bacteria, which uh, I believe are the good guy bacteria. And it doesn't, um, you know, there's no collateral damage apparently with the bad guy bacteria. So I, um, and I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not advocating this treatment right now. I mean, I think that's, that's something that uh, we want to talk more about with, uh, with Chris and in terms of getting some numbers behind it. I did do a, um, a pre-post analysis with uh, Aquabiomics before I had the, um, you know, while I was having the issues with the RTN, STN. So I, I did a um, Aquabiomics test. And then after I finished the treatment, it was three different treatments, I did another test. So I haven't gotten that data in yet to see what, uh, what it shows. But um, it, um, my issues stopped, you know, knock on wood, three weeks since uh, the last treatment. I have had no more episodes with RTN and STM with my acros, which pleases me, you know, and I am seeing corals that were um, stressed out. So I had some corals that you could kind of see didn't have as much polyp extension. There was some loss of color. So those were kind of like the corals I think were next up in terms of succumbing to whatever was in the, uh, the tank, you know, so was it, my zero phosphates, was that really the issue? Um, I just got back some more ICP test results, and I still have the same very, very, very low phosphates. According to ICP, I've got zero phosphates in that tank. And uh, it, it kind of confounds me because I dose a lot of phosphate. And, um, you know, there is some algae in the tank, so I, there's got to be there's got to be phosphate um, in the tank. So, yeah, I mean, that's... That was my experience in terms of using the oxalinic uh, acid to, to turn that around. And I think um, it'll be very interesting to kind of see what the data shows, if, if there indeed were some coral pathogens. I mean, it basically, I had a long conversation with Jake and Chris Mackley about this treatment. And they did convince me to try it, right? And 
to be honest, it made no difference to my course. So that kind of led me to believe maybe my issues mm -hmm. are not bacterial, right? Um, again, I, I fully believe the experience that Jake and Chris had, or even Julian, and not only just Julian, the guy who told them about this, I forget his name now, I think he's at, he's at Frost, Zach maybe. Um, and they had good experience with using it. So if your issue is bacterial, right, which Cipro attacks, amoxicillin attacks, uh, erythromycin attacks, these are all bacterial things that they attack. And maybe that yeah. solves the problem. Okay. But none of my problems got resolved with that. Uh, I know Aquabiomics came back with the swab test that I did with them, and they said that it, it, it showed no bacterial issues. Right? So maybe it's not bacterial in my case. Did you do that test after you did oxalic acid, though, or before? Okay. Before, before. I mean, so you, sure you, no, so you had no coral pathogens on the pre test. Well, not in the swab test. Yeah, nothing showed up. Is that why you were still I, having? Yeah, I said, you know, fine. I'll take I'll take a long shot and do it, right? And see if anything changes. I still have two corals that are still showing the mm. same symptoms that I had when my nitrates were way high and everything else was off the scale, and they're still showing the exact same. Hmm. Thing. There's a white band that keeps progressing slowly hmm. into that coral. Right? I don't so, like that. that. Oxalic acid didn't stop it. Right? Cipro didn't stop it. And you were throwing it. everything at it. I mean, I wasn't doing Cipro at Mike's level. <laughs> he yeah. went he went I nuclear. Was doing whatever. <laughs> I, I went to yeah, either he went Jack Potter all dead. There was no in between <laughs> when I got to it. But my, my, my thing is that, okay, there's just two corals that are doing it. Do I want to upset my whole tank because of these two corals? I don't. If those two don't want to live, they can, you know, go to coral heaven and I'll find something <laughs> to replace it. But, but I'm not going to screw up my whole tank just for those two corals. Right? And these are not small corals. These are huge corals. These are 18-inch diameter corals that it's happening to. Um, yeah. A couple of thank yous to Leisure Lawns for that super chat. Uh, love the show. Thank you. And Doghouse Reaper, thank you guys for sharing all of your knowledge. I always learn a lot from you guys. Um, here, here's an interesting um, side note with my situation. So, um, you know, I've got LEDs, GHL Mitra's running on that tank <clears throat> that I was having the, uh, the episodes with. And um, so I had a... Um, and a home wrecker colony and a Walt Disney colony that started to uh, STN on me. And, you know, it's kind of one of those situations where um, you kind of hope it stops, but you know it's not. <laughs> you know, it's just, you, all right, I'll leave it in there another day and maybe it'll just stop, right? And, and, yeah, right. Warrior, but we and all then, do that. And then you right? kind of like, you're, you, you've been there, done that. You've been, uh, you know, you've been to that rodeo, right? And you're like, I got to freaking pull the colony out as much as it, you know, it just tears me apart to take a beautiful. Um, mature colony and so I uh, I took those colonies out at different uh, points in time <clears throat> and um, 
you know, so I fragged off the dead coral from uh, each of those colonies, and I put on my other system, which has uh, halides. And um, they both survived. Both of those um, large chunks, those colonies, survived in my, my halide system. So I guess, Mike, that kind of uh, begs the question that we were talking about uh, a while ago in terms of your theory that, um, you know, halides uh, over a tank can help potentially combat uh, coral pathogens. Wait, 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 wait. Before you jump to that <laughs> no, conclusion. No, I'm not going to jump no, to that I... conclusion. I'm just throwing it out there. We... Did you put, no, did you put I, frags I, back in your LED tank? This, this, no, I have, I have halides on top of my LED right? tank simply to see if it would have helped the RT and STN, and it didn't have any effect. So I have since rescinded my hypothesis. I, I knew that, yeah. But I had to test it first. The only thing that has cured the uh, STN in the tank was a, a double dose of Cipro. First, uh, one tab per the 600 gallons, which I did every other day for a week. That killed off Vibrio. And how do I know this? I have a friend that works at the microbiology lab at Pitt. He now tests my stuff. I don't send things to uh, Aquabiomics anymore. I can swab stuff and send it to him, and he tells me, okay, this is what you have. So I had uh, Vibrio vulnificus, which is no big shock because Vibrio vulnificus is everywhere. It's so everywhere. The, the first dose of Cipro at one tab every other day for a week seemingly killed off the Cipro. But what it then did was bred out the far more nasty Archobacter, which is a, a, a nastier pathogen. It's not as prevalent, but if you have it and your corals are stressed, which obviously mine were, they will succumb to it. And it was the same thing that Sanjay was seeing. It would jump here, then we'd go over here, half the colony would die. And so I did, took out some of these colonies that were being, that were succumbing to this STN. And I did them for a three hour dip in high dose Cipro. Because what my friend told me was the MIC 50 for Vibrio is about 10 times lower or approximately of what it is for Arcobacter which for those of you not in infectious disease means you need to use a higher dose of Cipro or another drug to kill it, to get the same 50% uh, mortality rate. So when I did the three hour dip in the high dose Cipro, amazingly, and I'm saying amazing, I was shocked that it actually worked because I had tried peroxide, I had tried amoxicillin, I had tried doxycycline, the colonies all had succumbed. When I did the high dose Cipro, it stopped. Pulps were out the next day, the colors were back in three days. It was like, wow, this is a miracle. It actually killed off whatever was doing it. But I'm also a, uh, I understand the concept of the fertile ground hypothesis. That is, if you plant something and cut it back and you keep it in the same ground, it'll grow back. Same thing happens on a reef tank. If I had the same conditions, odds are the pathogen would come back and the, and the archobacter would attack them even more. Consequently, I went to the, this tank's either going to be wiped out or it's going to be survive the Cipro. So I did six tablets of Cipro every day for five days. And after that, I did a massive water change, added carbon, turned the skimmers back on. And lo and behold, since then, the STN has stopped. How, so, how long has that been? That's now been, I think, three months, three and a half months. Have you done so it? I'm pretty, Pardon? I was going to say, had... so if it comes back, if it comes back, what's the conclusion? <laughs> if it comes back, it's that I brought it back in on something else. That's why now everything I add goes through a Kung Fu dip of Cipro, 
uh, Lugol's iodine, hyperpotassium, and coral RX. So I'm not taking any chances by reintroducing the pathogen. It may still be there, but it's not. And what's what's the survival rate of the frags for that uh, sequence of dips? Uh, 100%. Oh, wow. It's, it's only a 45-minute dip. It's not like a, a two-hour dip. I mean, the biggest thing is keeping the temperature stable. So now I have a bucket that sits inside the tank. The tank water circulates around it, so it keeps the temperature the same. Mike, did you do a um, another um, follow-up microbiome test? Yeah, I, I did where the uh, skeletons were damaged on the first time. Or not, I didn't do a microbiome. I sent it to my friend. He said there's no archobacter on the dead portions of the skeleton, and most of those have grown back. So I was, like I said, I had a tough year. I had that pink fuzzy algae that I had to kill off, which wiped out a lot of stuff. I had this uh, Arcobacter and Vibrio. And then uh, uh, a month ago, I killed off Sarcothilia because it was killing my uh, LPS tank. And it worked amazingly well, but it also pushed, killed a significant number of Montipora caps, as well as all the snails, Asterinas, uh, Vermitid snails, bristle worms, and the sarcothelia. So it, it is a lethal uh, You might as well just put bleach in there. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of that. I'm just going to paint the damn corals and call it a day. <laughs> yeah, I guess, the, you know, my question to you is, uh, what, what's the collateral damage long-term by using the Cipro? Is there any? Uh, the only, only thing I saw, my redox typically runs 375 to 380. For three, week, three weeks after that, it ran between 300 and 310. So I know it killed off something because the, the redox never goes that low. And it took three weeks and a significant number of water changes to bring it back up to where it's back at 375, 380. So it, it, there was collateral damage, but I did not see any damage to any corals, soft corals, uh, anemones, or anything else. I mean, everything survived that far better than they did with Offendabendazole. Which is, which, believe it or not, was actually the last thing I was talking to Jake about when he boarded the plane that day. I mean, the last thing I ever said to him was thanks because he gave me the dosage to use on it. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, I'll talk more about that with uh, with Meckley because I know he was working with Jake as well on the uh, oxalonic acid uh, treatment. I mean, I, I'm I'm convinced that it 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 does kill stuff. And if your stuff is bacterial, yeah, right, and it's then it, it can have a positive effect. The problem is still have. It's not the end all be all because we don't know the yeah. cause, right? So all we're doing is throwing all a bunch of different things at it and hoping that it'll stop. As we were discussing before when and, we started, <clears throat> we do a lot of conjecture. Our hope is that our conjecture is right. But in terms of coral disease and coral pathogens, our conjecture is all over the place. We really are at the infancy of understanding coral diseases and how to treat them. So right now we're using nuclear bombs like Cipro or oxalic acid or whatever because we don't know the specifics. Uh, having worked in medicine for 40 so years, I know early on they did the same thing in treating infections. They basically used nuclear bombs to kill stuff. And over 40 years, they got a lot better and a lot more specific, so the toxicities weren't nearly as bad. With us, we're still new using nuclear weapons to kill flies, and the toxicities are still really bad for the most part. Well, may, maybe the Cipro is your nuclear bomb and the oxalic is, is you know, more targeted. 
Okay. I don't I don't deny anybody's experience, like he, especially Meckley's. I mean, he's got a huge colophon. And if he tells me that now his his uh, elegance corals and his euphelia are doing a lot better, his survival rate is a lot better, I believe him. I'm not dealing with that volume of corals. The, and <clears throat> so I'm convinced that, yeah, sure, it could help them, right? At the same time, it didn't do anything for me in my one little tank, right? It didn't change what I was seeing, right? So clearly, maybe what I have is different from what he's seeing. Yeah. So I'm open to that discussion, you know, and say, okay, I. Sure, it definitely could work in his environment. And the corals he brings in, he's bringing in new corals all the time. God knows what the hell they come with, right? And if he's able to increase his survival of his corals, great. Yeah. That's what we want to see, right? I mean, we, we, could, we could literally wow. sit here and do a show just on all the causes we know of for RTN and STN. It's, you know, everything and anything we do that stresses the corals can potentially cause it. Is it? a pathogen is it just stressing the corals is it nutrients is it light it could be literally any or all of those or combinations like i said we're still in the infancy of really understanding how to prevent it or how to reduce it so the reason i did it is well, i had gone to see uh devin and randy at arc and we were talking about diseases and stuff and they said yeah well we're using cipro regularly because we're seeing these bacterial infections so I came home and like I said, I tried it on three corals that I had done everything I could. I shot them with peroxide, I dipped them in witch hazel. I did everything. Only when I treated them with Cipro did they survive. So that led me from the initial analysis of saying, okay, I think this pathogen is sensitive. They survived to then going, okay, I'm still having it. I still haven't killed it all. So that was, that was the hypothesis of which I worked on. Because believe it or not, Sanjay, I did not change 12 other factors when I did this. I just <laughs> You held everything constant. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm doing one thing it's... at a time now. I'm not changing anything. I'm not adding anything. I'm just letting the, the tank run in the Sanjay method. Survival of the fittest. So, uh, so Chris and Amanda right. from ACR are watching, and uh, Chris's comment is, why do we have bacterial issues popping up in the last five to ten years when the issue was never thought about in the past? Uh, that could be a number of reasons. One, Well, it's not true because we were having elegance coral issues for a long yeah. time. We, we had in the 90s right. that were massive. We were having brown jelly issues on euphelia for a long, long time. Did we think it was just uh, right. in terms of how we were, uh, you know, the care in terms of the nutrition and, and uh, traces and all that stuff? No, a lot of it is, you know, maybe they're coming in the way they were shipped or where, they, you know, and so on. There's lots of issues there, right? Also, we're... And if it's bacterial and if oxalic acid works, then great, we found a solution to that problem, you know? Also, we could be keeping um, more sensitive corals than we used to, where we're keeping a lot of uh, thin skins, we're keeping a lot of tenuous. I mean, like in the 90s, we were trying to keep Geminifera. We could never keep that coral alive. That was one of the most spectacular corals coming out of Fiji forever. Nobody I know has ever kept it alive for more than a couple, three months. So we, we still had bacterial me. infections. 
Kept it for years. No, that was that was uh, humilis, and you kept saying it was. Well, you can call it humilis if you want, but <laughs> no, but that was before names. We didn't know. We knew what the genus and species were. Now we wouldn't know what it was because it's not named. No, I mean, so the point is that you know, yes, you know, as we expand all these things, and I don't know what the collectors do, what they mix, and how good their systems are. Uh, they could be introducing bacteria that eventually then impact the coral uh, when they ship it and lands here. And I think it's good that we are working towards getting to the point where, all right, whether we know what, what it is, this treatment seems to help the corals, right? We'll leave it to the scientists also, to figure yeah. out what it is, right? But at the same time, we have a working solution right now that helps yes. our corals. And I'm, you know, it's worth considering anybody's claim that this is helping my corals, right? It's worth considering every one of those claims. There's a lot of tendency of poo-pooing it and say, ah, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, I think there's some merit to going back and revisiting it and saying, okay, it, it's working for you. I want to know why it works for you, right? Because that's what we're going to learn. It's not working for you. So clearly there are situations where it doesn't work, right? So if we do this iteration over and over, I think we narrow down, at least without knowing the cause, we can still narrow down and get to a procedural protocol that helps improve the survival. And, you know, and one other thing to think about, um... You know, what, what, what's the impact of kind of going overboard on the treatment with antibiotics, right? I mean, with humans, if you just keep popping antibiotics, you're going to kind of become immune to them, and, and they're not going to work effectively down the road. You know, is that, well, is, is that something we have to fear about in reef keeping? People to be, um, you know, doing these antibiotic uh, treatments. Will that uh, potentially make the corals um, or the pathogens immune to that kind of treatment? Well, in that regards, there's are people now that do, you know, monthly or quarterly treatments with Chemiclean, yeah. which is erythromycin, which is an antibiotic. They do it to keep cyan rather than figuring out what the cause is. What are the long-term effects of these? I mean, I'm not planning on doing another Cipro treatment unless I see that the pathogens are there, but I'm doing everything I can to prevent it. And, and getting back to how is are these uh, bacterial infections new, remember about 10 years ago, they stopped bringing in all elegance corals because they all came in with a bacterial infection, they all eventually succumbed. Now they sort of bring them from different areas so they would live, but they've also learned to treat them with antibiotics to keep them alive. And the Cipro treat was actually invented to treat euphilia more than anything else yeah. and the brown jelly disease. Yeah. So there's, there's always a, a cross uh, pollination of things because there's some people that keep, uh, you know, bunches of euphilias and LPS that don't keep SPS corals that have treated with Cipro. Versus my case, I have LPS and SPS in the same system and treated with Cipro. And to be honest, the ones uh, that were along with the this was also better. Yeah, and I should point out the oxalinic acid treatment was, I think it was originally uh, intended for uh, for torch corals. You know, LPS, not SPS. Um, yeah, I, it just kind of like blows my mind, you know, I guess... You know, there's a lot of questions out there that need to be answered in terms of like, you know, do we all have some level of uh, coral pathogens in our tank? And, and um, you know, is there certain stress kind of factors that come into play? 
that uh, will kind of um, you know give an entrant you know an entree for a, a coral pathogen to impact the coral's uh, you know health is is it uh, the high uh, nutrients is it the very low nutrients is it some sort of um, you know thing that stresses corals out and makes them vulnerable to the uh, to a coral pathogen I mean do we do we have does everybody have coral some some level of coral pathogens in their tanks Yeah oh sure I mean I'm sure everybody if, if does, you review the right? you'll never eliminate them right and again, it's different corals have different immunity to them. That's my yeah. Opinion, and and ha right? having reviewed that corals are, they 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 can fight off certain things when they're healthy, right? And they don't. It's the same yep. thing with fish, right? You stress a fish out, yep. it's going to get it. You know, even if it's been in your tank and years. You think you think my fish right now in my tank? There's no way. I don't see it. It's not there. It's there, though. Right? I have my Achilles tank, which has no ache on it. Right? I know the day my temperature will drop or something weird will happen, that Achilles tank gets ache like this. So it exists. It's existing there. It's there. Right? But because the tank is still healthy, it'll, if it gets the ache, it'll, it comes out of it. You know? So... I think it's the same thing with coral. Yeah, if you do a review of the literature, there, there are, if you stress a coral out, it's going to have issues. Um, that, so now it becomes a fertile ground for the pathogens that might exist in your tank to gain an upper hold on it, right? And that's that's my argument. I mean, you got, I've got 100 corals. Two of them have issues. All right, it bothers me that they have issues, but is it worthwhile stressing out the rest of the 98 to try and influence what's happening to these two? And I've reached that point where I go, it's not worth it because those 98 are doing great, right? And I'm not gonna stress them all out just for these two. Right, there's always one coral that seems to not be as chipper as the other corals out there, right? Right. Seems like it. Right. Sanjay, you know. survival of the fittest rule. <laughs> but if you do a, if yeah. you do a review of the of coral pathogens, you'll find that everything from low pH that allows for pathogens to be in the, the microbiome of the corals to inadequate supplies of trace elements or nutrients like molybdenum or strontium, all potentially can lead to stress in the corals and lead to pathogens attacking them. So it's not just one thing that's causing it. There's a multitude of things, and we, we, we're just right. trying to figure out what it is. It's like we said, there's always something, and there's always like trying to keep plates on a stick. You're always having balancing those plates, and you may run down to the end and get one going, but the one on the other end falls down, and that's what causes your pathogens to come in. Especially when you don't even know yeah. what the ones are. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. the key... <laughs> The key you know, you know is stability, 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 you know, to, to try to be as stable yeah. as possible in your parameters. And, and I think any big swings in something that might uh, impact the, um, the health and welfare of a coral could open the door. All right. So I'm going to flip that on you right now, right? Is it better to have complete stability or to provide enough variability that your corals are hardy enough to handle that range? Well, that's... You keep it steady to that point where any deviation. I would is say an stability issue within a range. 
let's say that like with alkalinity yeah, i think right. i think if you're between eight and ten i i try not to sweat swings you know um too you know if it's within the eight to ten range and it's not swinging too big um day to day in that uh in that sort of range i i think uh i think things are going to be okay right so i think that that's what i'm trying to point out it's stability yeah. but within a range yeah right I mean, I do. I want to keep my nitrates at five the whole time. You know, no. I mean, it can fluctuate between ten and two. You know, whatever, and things might still be okay. Right. So we need to find acceptable range where I'm not going to say everything is okay, but most things are okay. No, coming from a medical background, what we're actually looking at is what's called the therapeutic window, where Below right. certain levels, things are bad. Above certain level, things are bad. But if you get that right. sweet spot, that therapeutic window, that's when the drugs work. That's when everything's good. It's the same way in our tanks. You have variability within that window of a multitude of things. But as long as you stay in that window, things are good. It's when you go way outside one way or the other that you typically have problems. I mean. And how rapidly do you go outside right. that yeah. window? You gradually transition outside that right. window. Things tend to be still be okay, but if you rapidly transition out of that window, that's when you yeah, start to see I, some you know, of the, the other day, I, you know, my alkalinity from one of my tanks was, um, you know, eight five, eight eight, and it had been pretty steady in that range. And then um, the next day, it was ten point one, and I was like, okay, let's uh, let's 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 monitor this one closely because that uh, that's a little uncomfortable in terms of that swing. But so what yeah, made I it ten point one? No freaking idea. I. Uh, you know, I don't know. Right. I could testing error. And you won't see the effect for two to three weeks. So maybe you you added a lot. Thanks, Mike. Ability. I'm going to be looking forward to the next couple of weeks to uh, to see the impact yeah. of that. Right about Christmas. That's when it will hit. <laughs> that's the other point I want to make is okay. Let's say you ultimately jump this high, right? And the next day, next day, you know, things still look okay, and you know things are fine. Now, three months down the line, things start to misbehave. Would you ever attribute it to the alkalinity jumping that high? That's that's a hard one to say, you know, okay. I mean. Right. So, you know, we don't know whether when we something happened, the effect is not immediate, right? And if an effect shows up after a period of time, there's no easy way for us to say, yeah, those things are a problem. See, that's the problem with modern reef keeping is that we have too many friggin' numbers. And, um, you know, if you react too quickly to those numbers, then I think that could be problematic. And I've been guilty of that um, sometimes. Right. And that's why I tell people most of the time, you know, if you react to the numbers so quickly, it, it's, it could be right. a problem itself. No, you, what, what, right? whatever 10, fine. And it gradually comes down to 8.5 again, slowly, you know, when you're doing nothing. Right? Now you start to force it down. Now it's got a big spike in the middle here. You know, is that going to cause a problem? We don't know. We don't know those answers. Right? So things that I do today is a lag. We're not very good at dealing with lags. No. And getting back to the question, why do we have more problems seemingly now with disease and stuff than before? I look back and when I was started and did this, once I got found something was successful, I basically did it 
bing, bang, boom. It was the same rote thing. I did my water changes on Saturday morning. I tested every other day. I fed this much. I did this. And most people like Sanjay and everybody else were doing the exact same thing all the same time. Now we fluctuate things a little bit more. We change the lights down. We look at our nutrient levels. So we look at things. And I'm the worst person for this. I will admit that because I'm always changing and trying to find something a little Mike's better. Mike's the worst. I'm the worst. I, and I admit that. I've, I've tried to get better this year. 2022, I tried to do fewer changes <laughs> to keep things stable. I still had issues, but that was basically laziness that caused a lot of that. But back then, I knew exactly what my schedule was. I had all my parameters up. I checked them. I wrote them down. Everything was much more systematic and stable. Here I have all this stuff showing me, like, oh, my God, and I may chase a number, which I, is stupid to do. And I know a lot of people do that, so that may account as well for why we have so much more disease now. Or people are actually reporting it. Because when we started this in the 90s, we basically had to call, hey, Sanjay, I'm losing a coral here. People didn't call to tell you what was going on, so we may, that may have been occurring. <laughs> now everything's on the Internet all the time. Oh, I lost this. So, you know, so it... it may be a result of us just reporting it better than it actually occurring more often. I mean, come on. We all have kept corals for a long time. We're in this hobby for 30 right. plus years. We've killed more coral than we've kept alive. I'll agree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? We have. But we've, we've also yeah. probably shared as much coral as we've killed. So we've shared enough frags with people that we're, sure. we broke even in the, the big scale of things. Right. But my point is that corals have been dying for a long time in our care. Yeah. For you know, whatever reasons. Right. If they didn't die, the Chris Meckleys wouldn't be in the business. <laughs> they replenish. Every coral we ever right? I'd be, I'd, Everybody would have corals that don't die. We don't need to buy any new corals anymore. So uh, I want to get back to a. a a question that John Farr had in the chat. Um, is there a bacteria or ciliate that affects only LPS? All my SPS are fine, but some of my Favia, Scolis, Pactinia seem to be declining, almost like a white band disease, which sounds familiar to what you had, uh, Sanjay. Yeah, it's almost just a receding disease that just moves along a line, yeah. you know. Any thoughts um, on that? Anything specific to LPS? I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that LPS and SPS, the environments are different. They don't want to thrive in the same environment. Right? I mean, I'm blasting my SPS coral with lots of lights and lots of flow. A lot of the LPS don't like it. They don't like it. You know? Uh, and they struggle. Yeah, my LPS. So maybe there's. There doesn't exist such a uniform environment, or there's not enough variation in our environment in our tanks to accommodate all the requirements of all these different species. You know, we're forcing things in a, that live in a vast ocean, and we are forcing them in a small box and giving them one single environment and saying, adapt and live in this environment. And some of them might go, I, I can't adapt to this, right? And some say, okay, maybe I'll, I can adapt to it and I'll live, right? 
And then you go, well, you're not the one I want to attack. I want this pretty one to attack. Yeah. Well, no, like in, in my case, my LPS and my, which is my Ghani, my ACAN, and my affiliate tank, is connected to the same sump as the SPS. They have no problems surviving in the same water. They do have problems, though, if I bump up the light on the LPS tank and bump up the flow of that tank. Like Sanjay said, they don't like the same conditions that the SPS are in. So they're in different tanks, but the same water. They can handle that. They just can't handle the same light and same water movement as the SPS. They do not like a high energy environment. That is not where right. they came from. And a lot of them have difficulty adapting to that. Yeah. Some will, you know, some will adapt, some don't. Yeah. Mike, what what about uh, you know your, you you talked about your dipping regime for uh, coral pathogens and what have you? Are are you um, how how uh, you know bulletproof do you think that can be given what uh, we were talking about that there's got to probably be some level of coral pathogens in our reef tank? I mean, is is there a way to have a uh, an established reef tank besides uh, you know bombing it with the Ciprio, you know, pathogen free? I. I doubt that I'm pathogen free, but one of the things I did after the Cipro was I added a lot of the different people, a lot of the different companies' bacterial concentrations that are quote unquote good bacteria. They don't tell you exactly what's in there, and having worked in microbiology and in infectious disease, I'm sure there's some pathogenic bacteria in there. I added as much as I could to bring the bacterial population back up of good bacteria, and that's probably what helped get the, the redox back up. But I'm sure there's pathogens in there. The key for me, like I said, is not to introduce a large quantity when I'm adding new corals or even one coral, because if it's loaded with stuff, that could be enough to trigger things. And two, I'm trying to keep things as stable as my, I possibly can, which is one of the more difficult things for me, because I always like to change something. But I'm trying to keep things as stable, and by keeping things stable over the last six months, that's gone a long way in keeping the tank happy and healthy. And like Sanjay says, I look for growth tips, but I also look for a gradual increase in the consumption of calcium, alkalinity, nitrates, phosphates, and things like that. So I, I, I'm seeing all of that. So I know things are have significantly improved from where I was a year ago, where I was still running this battle, but I wasn't get, getting those things increasing. What about the uh, use of UV 24-7 as, um, as a method to try to keep coral pathogens uh, in check? It'll only work if the pathogens are free swimming in the water. Most of the pathogens I found are basically on contact on the substrate. And that's why when we used to, when in the 90s, when Fiji corals came in and we had STN outbreaks like crazy, the key thing was when you were removing the coral, not let any of that tissue slough off onto the next coral, because as soon as it did, that next coral would get STN. So from that standpoint, it, it may help. I find it more useful when I add new fish to the tank to keep them from breaking out and ick even after they're quarantined, just moving a fish from a quarantine tank to their tank typically is stressful. I, I haven't found a way to, you know, knock the fish out so it's asleep, so I move it into the other tank. So it's always stressed when it goes in. I mean, I have found that by putting it in a plastic box and not letting the other fish kill it has significantly reduced the amount of stress in the tank, reduced my amount of it. But I also run UV 24-7 when I add those new fish. Sanjay, what about you? Or uh, using UV, UV, yeah. using do, UV. Uh, do you, uh, I can't recall. Are you using it? Malcolm? No. He's a survival no. of the 
Yeah. The problem with, again, my, my problem with all of these things is like, okay, wait, you can use a UV. Are you using it correctly? Are you providing enough of the dosage that's needed to kill something? And what is it you're trying to kill? And what is the dosage needed to kill it? If you don't have that information, what good is the UV doing? It's just randomly shooting in the dark again, right? I've had issues. I've had. I mean, I've dealt with. I've used UV, and I've eliminated yep. dinoflagellates with it. Right? I have people who use it and go, oh, you know, I, you said to use UV, and I, it didn't kill my dinoflagellates. Yep. Yeah, because there's some species that are free swimming, others yeah. that are substrate. Yeah. So, secondly, that's one aspect. Secondly, they could be running the UV Wrong incorrectly. Flow. Yeah. Not enough flow. Uh, not enough power in the UV to kill stuff. Right? Yeah. So I think you know it's not just using UV. We need to have better understanding of what we're trying to do with the UV. Right? What's the kill dosage for some of these things that we're trying to kill? And there's not enough data that people have to do that. Right? So. To me, that's part of the problem, right? I mean, you know, yeah, I can say use UV, and it does great for me, and maybe the, I'm using it correctly. Or when it doesn't work for me, maybe I'm not using it correctly. Right? People say use UV for ick. Well, um, what doses do you need to kill ick? Right? I mean, these are the kind of things that I would need to know to say, okay, it'll actually yeah. kill ick. Yeah, I, I run UV um, 24-7, and, and primarily just to uh, as a preventative measure for, for dinos if it is potentially, uh, you know, killing some free-floating dinos, and I, I run it for that. Um, yeah, I mean, also for fish disease, I don't know exactly what that does. I, I know it's not going to be a, um, right. an end-all, be-all yeah. for, for fish disease. So, um, yeah, you know, and is UV killing beneficial bacteria that we, uh, are, you know, are good for the system? I don't know. Right. So those, those are the kind of questions that prevent me from making blanket statements about UV, right? The only thing it's ever done, anything that I can clearly say is it did, and I've done this three or four times, it eliminated this dinoflagellate bloom that I had. It eliminated this bacterial bloom that was in my tank that was making my tank cloudy, right? Right? But I, you know, but people say, I did the exact same thing. I used the exact same one you're using. Yeah. And it did nothing. Which is, again, nothing wrong with it. But now that you want to understand why is it that it worked for me and not for the other person. Right? And that's when you start getting into it. Okay, you know, were you using the right amount of flow through the thing? Maybe it was you running water through faster, that's the whole thing. Right? Maybe it's a whole, you have a whole different situation than I have. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. Every reef tank is unique. There is no cookie-cutter reef tank that you can say that, um, you know, all right, follow my plan, and it'll work out exactly as it has for me. No, there, there, is, no, no. there is no perfect it's, method. It's never worked out. There way. is no perfect method, because if there right. was, everyone would be doing it following that exact perfect method. It's all, I mean, Sanjay and I joke about this but, all the time. We trade corals. He puts them in his tank. They look completely different. I go there. I want that coral. He goes, you gave me that coral. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it changed. Everything changes dramatically. We laugh about this all the time. Right. 
That's why I posted in your last thing. I said, yeah, send it to me. I'll make it look <laughs> yep, good. <exactly. laughs> Color it up for him. That's what I got to do. I got yeah. to I gotta, I gotta put up a picture of your splice and show this is what a splice is supposed to look like. Oh, yeah. I, I we, saw that on we, Facebook. You know, interestingly, you think with all the problems my tank had, that splice was yeah. fine. That, that's the thing. We don't know. I mean, the problem so, is, that began in this hobby and is still the case. 90% of the information is still anecdotal. I did this and this worked. Well, I did this and it didn't work. Okay, why? We don't know. Uh, and hopefully we're getting better. And the provision of information on social media is one way, but it's also a lot of misinformation that comes across that way. Oh, yeah. Well, what do you tell somebody who says, you know, I, I set up a tank and here's my frag and it died? You know? I just shrug my shoulders and I go, get another frag. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get a different one. Don't get the same one. So obviously that one's all not the happening. frags are dying, Sanjay? Right? All your yeah, frags are dying and there's yeah. a problem. Well, that, that's where it gets into, I mean, after water changes, which we all hate to do, testing is the second thing we hate to do just as much. It just isn't a fun thing to sit there with a bottle and go, okay, did it turn pink or is it still blue? And as you get older, you can't even see the damn color changes. So there, there, there's certain things we don't like to do, but they need to be done. Because without testing, you don't know how much your stuff is consuming. So you can't make the changes to keep things stable. I mean, I've become much more of an advocate of testing than I ever thought I would be. Yeah, me, me too. I, um... Interestingly, you know, given the issues and so on. And I go, you know what? Testing is, is kind of good. Yeah. It's still not fun, but it's good. I, I used to, I used to ICP yeah. test maybe once a year. Now I'm doing it every month. I just, you know what? I want the information. Yeah. Right. For $40 where you're protecting. But what are you doing with that information? Is it worth $40? Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I think they're reasonably priced for the, Value just for provide. the phosphate test alone oh. for me is like worth the money <laughs> the phosphate oh, test well, kits ready. are garbage i mean uh i'm so frustrated by phosphate test kits well i don't i, I use the hannah ultra i don't want to say they're, i don't, I don't want to say they're garbage but uh it's a little frustrating when you compare those to icp i mean you know again with all of these things you got to know the variability yeah. of these test kits right I mean, if you expect it to be exact, you know, then that's not correct either, right? So you go, okay, yeah, I'm going to test it. And if it shows 0.9, well, it could be 0.12, or it could be 0.06, right? Yeah. You gotta I'm know, not 0.06. But how, 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 you got to know what the margin is. So, yeah, so you, you go, okay, is that a comfortable range for me, right? If it's not, then you go, okay, maybe I'll bring my phosphates down. You know, my, my frustration is um, I use the Milwaukee um, phosphate test kit. You know, it's a pretty, it's like a higher end phosphate test kit. And um, week after week after week, zero, 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 zero. ICP, point one. What? You know? Well, come on. ICP is, a, is going to give you a much more resolution. Right. And, and, and so I'm like, you know. Should I ignore the, uh, I guess I got to, you know, the, you got to built in some sort of factor when you compare the uh, the test kit. What's the error range on the uh, Milwaukee? Can't be the, I know. They tell I, you I got to look range. at that, but it can't be that big, can it? 
So you look at the error range and you go, okay, you know, it can be negative. So the error range is, in this case, going to be mostly positive. Right? Yeah. So it could be zero or it could be whatever, you know, 0 0.05, 0 0.07. And if it's 0 0.05, 0 0.07, then ICP tells you it's 0.1. Well, now you have a kind of a frame of reference and you go, okay, you know, I can work with that. I'm just looking at some of the uh, the comments in the chat. Folks, certainly uh, feel free to, uh, to drop some questions in this uh, interesting, uh, very interesting, uh, engaging conversation here. Um, I'd love to... Uh, all right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep digesting these comments, and um, so my other question to you guys, and I think we've talked about this before in terms of uh, dosing bacteria, is is uh, is dosing, you know, and I know what Sanjay's answer is going to be. We don't have any of the uh, we don't have the data to support that theory that dosing bacteria oh, no. will help or possibly prevent uh, path pathogenic bacteria from kind of taking hold, or or um, right. So is 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 there any other benefits to dosing bacteria besides? Well, here's what I see in terms of benefits. Um, corals do consume bacteria, right? So is that a benefit? Um, bacteria can also help control nutrients and bring down nitrates and phosphates. And, um, you know, so the third thing is, is um, dosing bacteria, you know, beneficial by adding the good guy bacteria to have more of a, a population of the good guy bacteria. You have the aqua biomics guys. I mean, tell them to run these experiments. For you. It's going to get a little pricey, Sanjay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, but th this is my point. I mean, okay, you know, you're asking these questions. They're good questions, right? We have the tools to maybe get the maybe get the answers. Yeah, I have one tank that doesn't have good have bacteria added. Have another tank with bacteria added. I mean, I when I add bacteria, I don't buy Joe's bacteria. I buy a multitude because I don't know what's in any of them. And the hope is that I'm getting, adding enough good bacteria. The concern is I may be also be adding pathogenic bacteria because none of them tell you exactly what's in them. And you wouldn't know if you're adding pathogenic right. or not. Uh, it's just a, some colored liquid. Might as well pee in your yeah. tank. Well, hopefully I don't have any bacteria in there. Didn't Rich Ross say that peeing in a tank is beneficial? That's, that's the uh, that's the famous Dick Perrin anecdotal of all time. You, you... I mean, that's the, that's my point, right? I mean, we people sell these things. Fine, more power to them, right? But they don't want to. Nobody gives me the answers that I want. Right? Yeah. You... A. First of all, what bacteria right. are you selling? Two. Is that bacteria going to help my tank and how? Yeah. Right? All bacteria are not equal. And, and not all right? tanks are going to take in all bacteria the same way. So you've had a bacteria so, sitting on a, on a shelf for three months. You add it to the tank. Are you adding nothing but dirty water? Are you adding anything that's alive? Are you adding stuff that will stimulate the bacteria? We don't know. This, again, like Sanjay said, go pee in your tank. Uh, that, that's from Dick Perrin, that how he raised his clams, he peed in a tank. And we know at that conference, people went home and peed in their tanks. <laughs> I mean, that was the ultimate. How many tanks day. crashed oh, after that? Well, you probably had a pneumonia spike, and corals <laughs> and clams consume ammonia, so you, they may have had the corals burst in growth too. You know, we don't know. I mean, yeah, there, there's a lot of questions. There's more questions now than we had in the past, right? Because we also have more tools. 
at our disposal, right? So having more tools should help us answer some of these questions, right? We ask the questions in a proper way, right? So I mean, when I look at the ICP methods and their approach essentially says, all right, we're gonna tell you what's in your water and you should match your water to the ocean, all the way down to the trace elements. I, I kind of buy that idea. It's great because I, I had that idea 20 years ago. I just didn't have any ICP tools to do it, right? Makes sense, but there's nothing that says adding selenium or vanadium is actually impacting my corals. No evidence anywhere. Right. So yeah, I can match the water and sure, you know, it reduces one element of variability in my system. But doesn't mean that there is any impact of adding that on the corals. Right. And, and in theory, matching natural. So I like the idea of eliminating the variables. I mean, that's always a good thing. Right. But again, the point again goes back to, okay, there's variability in your tests. Yeah. And at lo that low level of trace elements, is it really going to make a difference? Well, also, if you're, you're going with a good theory that we should match natural seawater, but that's believing that our reef tanks are a small part of a reef, when in reality, they're so different from a reef in terms of the biomass versus the amount of water that goes over them. Exactly. So in reality, right. it may not make be beneficial to have normal seawater. You may need to have less or more to, to maximize the ability of these organisms to survive in captivity. That's what we're striving for, is to find out what the exact numbers are. We're starting from the baseline of normal seawater, but in reality, it probably isn't normal seawater that we want to have in our reef tanks because they're not like a reef in the middle of an ocean. So Chris uh, made a comment that kind of blows my mind. Different bacteria need different trace elements to thrive and feed in our uh, feed our corals. That uh, that's kind of a mind blower. Yeah, I yeah. we agree. <laughs> um, a couple of uh, peeing con uh, comments here. Um, ASA Agriculture, we cycle new systems by peeing in them to get ammonia built up. Really, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> um, we got. Uh, we got Andrew Sandler and uh, Rashid watching, and uh, Rashid said, uh, I almost peed in the tank today when I dove in. Maybe that's the secret sauce we've been missing, laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> the ammonia for yeah, the corals sure. and the clams, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I, I was lucky since the last time I saw you, I went and saw Andrew's tank again. And it's how meticulous he is in managing it, and the fish just are... I mean, I thought Sanjay had big, fat, healthy fish. He has little minnows in his tank. I mean, everything in his <laughs> tank is bigger and fatter than the two of us keep. It's just mind-blowing how well the fish and the corals are managed in that tank. I mean, that's uh, every time he posts a video and I watch it, it's just like you, like when I was there. You get to sit, and you, if you sit in a spot long enough, every two minutes you see something new that you didn't see before. And it's just that. You know, the only bad thing is when you see that, then you want to come home and throw your tank in the garbage. <laughs> I was supposed to visit those guys uh, in the fall. and I mean, it's a scale, it's a scale yeah. issue, right? I mean, it's a definitely a scale issue. 
I mean, these things are coming from the ocean. Even Andrew's tank is yeah. too small for them. Biomass relative <laughs> the amount of water. You know, and you put them in a 500-gallon tank like ours, I mean, that's small. That's small. We're forcing them to live in such tight yeah. Yeah. situations. That is, it's 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 stressful for a fish. Yeah, fish usually have you know a mm-hmm. uh, hundred square meters minimum for small fish. We have them in a little square box of a square meter. Okay, uh, they, they're a hundred times more stressed with other fish that they typically don't co-inhabit an area with. And we're wondering, well, why are these right. fish stressed? I mean, the same thing with the corals. I mean, you put a hydnophora next to something, it's going to kill it. You go, oh, it's pretty. Yeah. Eventually, going to kill it. Yeah. I mean, you know, these things are fighting for space. They're designed to fight for space for survival. Yeah. Right? So they're going to fight in any which way they can. Put out long singers and, you know, clear up space by killing everything around it. Um, We don't know what chemical warfare is going on. We have absolutely no clue. Especially, I mean, they're producing more nasty compounds. No clue. Yeah. I mean, I, I would love to just run these experiments someday. You know, it's like, okay. Well, when you're a professor emeritus at Penn Somebody State, give me a big grant. Let's go run these experiments. When you're right? a professor emeritus huh? at Penn State, go for the big grant money to do this kind of research. <laughs> finally get to do the things you like instead of building little plastic boxes. You do something fun. Yeah, exactly. But my, my point is that we've reached the point where some of these questions can be answered. Right? And slowly chip away at it. Right? So we've answered the question to some extent that we can tell you what's in your water with an ICP analysis. Right? I wish they would tell me what their air band is and everything else. So you have a more reasonable idea of what's in there. Right? And that's a good good that's a good thing. Whether there's an impact or not, I'm not going to argue about that. But at least now I have the capability of saying, all right, I can match my water to the ocean. I can take that one variable out of that equation for now. Right? Now, what's my next variables? Okay, I've got all this bacterial stuff in my tank. Well, we kind of have tools with aquabiome to kind of address that issue. I could say, okay, these are the bacteria that exist in my tank. These are the bacteria in Mike's tank. We have now have a decent idea of what the population of bacteria are in, in the tanks, right? The ratios may be different, but we at least have some idea of which kind of bacteria are thriving in, in, in reef aquariums. Going back to whatever the comment was from Chris, yeah. So we can we adjust the populations of different bacteria by doing different things by trace elements? Possibly. Right. Which ones do we want to adjust? I don't know. So, you know, as we again, this is we're not gonna answer it in my lifetime, I know for sure. Right? But We've come a long way in this hobby. Yes, I mean, we should be able to answer some of these questions and make it 
to the point where we have answers and people are not selling us snake oil. At least get rid of some of those kinds of things. Two things to add on to what Sanjay is saying. One, what we need in terms of bacteria is an ICP test for bacteria. These are what the numbers are. These are what they should be. And then know, like we can add trace elements now, we can add the bacteria mm. we need to balance things. The other thing is we've now gotten even beyond ICP test. When you look at things that like Fauna Marin is doing, where they're showing the ratios, how the ratios between some of these trace elements balance things out. Like if you have too high a bromine and too high an iodine, your corals may be turning brown even though your phosphate levels are low. I mean, that's just one example. But they're starting to look at these ratios right. and saying, okay, it's not just you have trace level X at this amount, but trace level X also interacts with trace level Y and trace element Z, and these have to be in balance or else this will happen. So we are going to the next step. We do have more information than we've ever had. And we now have bigger and more beautiful tanks, Andrews in particular, but we have bigger and more beautiful tanks with more people having them. And we have people from virtually every walk of life. So some of these people have this expertise that we start doing some of this stuff. Uh, Sanjay and I are old guys that have been doing this for a long time. We, we have this pretty much down but we want the next generation to bring this up to the same level of what we learned in the last 40 years to do the same thing, to make the same kind of advancements in coral nutrition, coral disease, trace elements, trace element management, bacterial management, all the things that are necessary to take us to the next realm or next level with this. So, that, I mean, there's so much more potential with this from where we are, but we've come so far. I mean, it's interesting from our standpoint to see where we came, where we were ha happy keeping leather corals alive, to where we're now getting everything we want to spawn. I mean, it's mind blowing to us. We never thought it would be like this. Did you think it would be like this, Sanjay? No, no. I, I, I look at Jamie Craig, uh, Richard Voss. These guys are spawning corals in their home, right? Yeah. I mean, I never dreamt when we started doing this that this mm. would ever happen, yeah. right? So we made great progress, and we made this great progress in spite of not knowing anything about the bacteria <laughs> or, you know, whatever all these things are, right? So progress can still be made, right? It's not hinging on these things, but these things may help us answer some of the more frustrating questions we have, right? People are raising these corals in artificial salt water, right? They're growing them out. They're raising the eggs. The larvae are settling. They're growing out the larvae. They've got colonies now, you know, from previous generations of settlement. They're hybridizing them. Without, without talking about bacteria, without talking about any of the other things, right? Um, so, can be done. Yep. And it's there. Uh, Rob Upstate, New York, many thanks, man, for the uh, super chat comments. Great chat, guys. Always a pleasure with you three. Um, and I want to... Um, throw out one more thing that Chris uh, Meckley just uh, said. I think this is a very interesting uh, comment. I don't think the corals need the trace elements. I believe the corals need the bacteria that need the trace elements. Sure, possible, yeah. very possible. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, we're just starting to figure out what we don't know. So, I mean, we, we have a, a lot of answers, but we're getting even more questions. Uh, as we've gotten better at this, I mean, I, I have more questions literally every day. Okay, why did this? Why is this coral growing twice as fast as this coral? 
They're basically an inch apart and they're the same coral. I showed pictures uh, last night of a uh, strawberry shortcake that's two inches apart. One is screaming fluorescent red and the other one is kind of like, eh, they're this far apart. There's, there's no reason. And they're the same coral. They should not be that different. I mean, it just exacerbated. No, why, why are you a foot taller than me? What? I'll give you some. Why are you a foot taller than me? I will, I will bring you I mean, some. You know, we'll these see are the kind of things. There's genetics. There's genetics involved in sports, right? There's genetics involved, right? Yeah. And the genetics are going to play some role. So, you know, we've all done this. We've taken two coral frags that are from the same coral and put them in different systems and they get different coloration. They grow differently, right? They have the same genetics, but they're still growing differently. No, but remember 10 years ago. So it's, it's not just genetics plus the expression of that genes that's triggered by the environment, yep. right? Maybe the alkalinity, the bacteria, the, all of those things could be different. And that changes what the coral does with it. No, and remember 10 years ago. So I in my again, I, I take I can get I can get hung up with all the details, but at the same time, to enjoy the hobby, I take a much bigger view of things and I go, fine, this coral doesn't want to do well in my system. Forget it. I'll put something else that wants to do well. Thank no, but just and still enjoy the hobby. This reminds me of 10 years ago, Sanjay, when you took, took five different colored acropora millipora colonies and put them in your tank. And within three months, they were all exactly the same color. They were all different colors right. when you put them really? in. Really? I mean, we go both ways. Sometimes they diverge and right. the same coral looks different. Sometimes different corals all merge and look the same. We don't know. I mean, I. Well, because they have the same yeah. environment. I told you from the beginning on that yeah. coral, these are all going to turn the same thing. Right, because they were growing in different environments, they had different shades of pink, right? And when you put them in one single environment, they all turned the same shade of pink. Yep. Um, oh, Rashid uh, Stories Read, thank you, man, for that super chat. The comment is the um, talking about the coral spawning. The spawning is amazing, but Julian mentioned the sea urchins are key to keep the rock clean for the eggs to have a place to land and thrive. Thank you, guys. Sounds plausible. I mean, the larvae are always searching for places to land. I don't know if you guys saw the video that Jamie posted yeah. recently, where he had these larvae all moving around. And they're essentially programmed to look for their forever home. <laughs> and they're going to make sure that they find the best home for themselves, right? This is their forever home. At least that's what they think until we come and chop them <laughs> up and move them. Corals can but, live forever, though, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> On the reef, they're looking yeah. for their forever home. Wherever they land, they're going to live there. Or they'll live there. Right? So they, they'll they, live there. They put effort into finding a good place. For yeah, and one of the things they're looking for is a place where they're not going to get overgrown by algae because they're smart enough to know if the algae overgrows them, they're dead. Dead. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, listen, I think this has been a uh, an awesome uh chat and uh i got a lot out of it i think everybody uh, that was tuning in got a lot out of it it was fascinating uh discussion any uh any final thoughts before we uh do an official wrap on it no we always enjoy talking sanjay and i we get together it's always a, a long-term discussion of everything from uh situation in the world to uh what's killing our coral so <laughs> it can be just about anything 
Yeah, we could talk about corals yeah. forever. Right? I mean, it's I kind of enjoy it. It's fun. Um, it's like I said, I've been doing it for more than thirty years. It's been a great hobby. Met great people. Yes. Made great friends. Yes. And, uh, Sanjay and I realize we've been friends now for over thirty-five years. We were basically kids when we started. <laughs> now our kids are yeah, older than more, we yeah. were when we started. None of them have any interest yep. in this hobby. Nope. nope. Well, I think none you guys. Uh, one of you guys mentioned that the uh, you know the future of the hobby is the younger generation that's coming in. So um, you know, hopefully, um, there's been some inspiration here for any of the uh, the younger set that's that's tuned in, and hopefully, uh, word will spread around and. And uh, yeah, I mean that's the future of it. I think we need to make it easier for the younger people. Right? We want to make it easier. And I think that's the struggle. Right? To me, when I look at it, I go, I think we yeah. made it harder. Yeah, I think we made it harder. I think we made it harder. Right? And the entry point, and kids don't want to do that. Yeah. No, I no. I don't blame them. Right? I don't blame them. So. You know, on the one hand, yeah, you know, we've learned a lot. We got better tools, but at the same time, you know, it's it become a barrier to entry. Very true, right? So there's got to be some happy medium which says, okay, you know, it's easy to do. It's not that hard. Okay, you don't have to be running ICP tests every week. You don't have to, you know, be doing all these things. You can still have a successful reef, right? So I think that's the part that scares people away, that it's so complicated, it's so difficult, that I don't want to get into it. Yeah, I, I think... And somehow, the cost is one thing, but, you know, the cost is what it is. There's not much we can do to control the cost. Shipping costs, you know, increase 10 times, what do you do? cost the world is going to go up, right? But at the same time, I mean, you know, you don't have to be buying corals. You don't have to be buying all these fancy corals, right? They're, you have friends. You trade. You do these things. So there's, man, there's ways to manage the cost, right? But the, you, you got to get to the point where people can have success with it without the complications, without having to... Like I said, run like what biome tests every week or run ICP tests every week or, you know, these are the kind of things that scare people away. Yeah, I think, yeah, um, we, go ahead, Mike. Right? We, have, we have to make the science of the hobby not be frightening. Make them understand it. it once you understand it, you can do it by rote. It's relatively simple. And like Sanjay said, I mean, I saw a uh, red planet about the size of a dinner plate. It was as spectacular as any rainbow, anything I've seen. I mean, you don't need to start off with the, the name $200 frags and with potentially an, an impending recession. I think a lot of those $200 frags are come down to $25 and $30 frags that they used to be because people are going to say, okay, I can have bread or I can have a coral frag. <laughs> and trying to explain why you have a coral frag instead of uh, feeding your family is not a discussion you want to have. So things are going to come down. But the problem I do see, I see so a lot of people getting out of the hobby because of the expense. Because with the cost of energy and the cost of this, it's going to be hard to justify this if things go sideways. You know, I think uh, an important thing to uh, to highlight also is to uh, to start start uh, really with the basic, like a softy tank or something. I mean, that's that's kind of like how I almost started keeping reef tanks is 
Yeah. Oh, right. Started. And I think today with social media, you see all these glitzy tanks on Instagram or whatnot. People see that like, I want to replicate that, you know, and they might jump in too far too quickly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think that, that that's the problem. Right? If you want this hobby to survive, you know, you, you can't overload with science and expensive equipment. Yeah. You know, there has to be an easier path to enter. Right and be successful. Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with the softy tank. And the reason no, it I look beautiful. Tank behind me. You know. So. But somehow, you know, and people just seem to gravitate towards the expensive stuff, which oftentimes is expensive yeah. for a reason. Yep. It no. doesn't grow that fast. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and as we all know, the most expensive you, you know, you're starting out time. in the hobby with a small little frag of an expensive colony that's not going to grow fast anyway. And any slight mistakes you make, it's not tolerant yeah. to mistakes. Yeah. It's dead, you know. Um, you got to work with corals that are more tolerant in the beginning as you're learning. But there's a learning curve with this as it is with anything else. Right? So, and you're going to make a mistake when you're learning. We all do. It's part of learning. Even though I can tell you the same thing 10 times until you do it, okay, you want to experience it. Okay. Uh, so that's, to me, that's the struggle with this hobby is how do you get it to the point where people can be successful with it? Right? With but, you know, we have to educate them that, hey, start with something easy, something small. I can keep soft corals, and they're very tolerant to a lot of my mistakes. Okay. So, you know, this is the kind of thing that keeps that leads to failures and people getting out of the house. Yeah. Um, and, and Sean M. made a comment. Uh, that's where the LFSs can help out. I totally agree. I think uh, a good local fish store is a great place to... Um, to go and get your start and have um hopefully some some mentor there that can kind of guide you through the process and not go go in overboard yeah they are absolutely the best place for that kind of stuff that's how i Me got too. into to be honest with you right i mean i always kept freshwater fish and so on but my dream was always to keep saltwater fish right it wasn't even corals i had never even seen a coral alive when i was growing up Right, except in the ocean. Never saw it in a tank. So here I am sitting here in State College, Pennsylvania, where there's one fish store. Right. And I walk into the store and she has this one little 20 gallon tank with corals in it. And I'm going, what is this? I came to buy saltwater fish. What is this stuff? And she said, Oh, that's corals, you know. And I said, Oh, you can keep them alive in a 20 gallon tank? She goes, Yeah. I said, okay, that's what I want, right? That's how I got into the hobby of keeping corals because I saw this being done in a 20-gallon <laughs> tank, right? And I go, oh, it's possible in a small tank like this. Sure. Mostly all soft corals, but that's fine. But they were all growing and thriving, right? So when you, I got that tank, I set it up and I started doing this. And then you start learning about these things. Within six months, I knew more than she knew about any of this thing. 
she had. I knew more about the chemistry of the tank than she ever would know. But she knew enough to keep the cause alive and thriving. Right? She didn't need to know any of the chemistry. She didn't know any of that stuff. Right? Her regime was very simple and straightforward. She goes, every week I do a 20% water change. Right? So she didn't worry about chemistry or testing or she she didn't do any testing at all. You know? 20 gallon water change. She was she locked was in. Doing it. Yeah. You get locked into that regime and it, it works and she was yep. successful doing um, it. Sanjay, you realize if she'd have given you a nickel bag of heroin, it would have been cheaper in the long run for uh, addiction. <laughs> There's a lot of things that would have been cheaper in the long run. Uh, Bill Saltwater Haven, uh, Mike and Sanjay, Ron Hunsaker was my mentor 25 years ago. Remember oh. his store? I miss it. Oh, I don't know. I know. Yeah, we talk about him every yeah. time we drive past Williamsport. <laughs> exactly. The biggest mother coral you've ever seen. Yeah, you couldn't wrap your arms around it. Oh, boy. Yeah, the, the largest leather coils I've ever. ever seen in this tank. Wow, awesome. Ever. Yeah. And this was the first tank where I saw tangs that would rip into trachyphilia <laughs> and kill it. <laughs> this was the only tank also. Like, really? These tanks actually fluorescent tubes above it. There were tubes on top of tubes. Right. You've never seen more fluorescent lights in your life. These were uh, VHOs? VHOs, HOs, anything you can find to fill every spot. HOs, everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got away from all of that, right? We made it so difficult. Boy, you know, set up a tank now, I need a $700 LED light? Come on. Give it a break. I used to buy $20 Home Depot fluorescent lights, and I used to run my yeah, tank. Yeah, softies <laughs> will do fine with it. You know? Go to Lowe's or Home Depot, buy a shop light. I'm That's sure that would be fine <laughs> for a soft. John Burleson ruined us by bringing huh? actinics and blue lights in because then we had to have colored soft corals. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know, we are not dealing with $700 lights to, to start yeah. with. Yeah. You know? Uh, I, but that's, yeah. that's what we made this out of, right? But that's what it's become. And then the barrier to entry is so high. Yeah. Well, you know, I think um, if, if we can kind of get back to the way it was in the olden days when uh, we had frag swaps and you actually went to a frag swap and you swapped frags. I remember, Sanjay, you and I uh, swapped some frags or maybe you just gave me some frags at a Manhattan Reef uh, frag swap many, many years ago. And that's when you went to a frag swap to exchange frags. It was uh, kind of like, uh, you know, Chris Meckley calls it the reefer's code. There's no money exchanged. Right. Right. I still do that today. Yeah, I, I still, I still buy corals and trade them. I, I, I just refuse to buy corals. Yeah, we do with each other. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just think about it, right? One phone call to Mike, one phone call to you, and I could end up with, you know, <laughs> 10 frags from each of you. Well, and frags. it's also important to bank frags. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. A lot of my frags that I had that died during the issues I had in my tank, you know, Mike and his friend Kevin, they have those frags. Last time I was down there, I picked them up and yeah. brought them back. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. No, you don't have to spend a lot of money in this hobby. That's for that's for sure. If um... yeah, you don't. You're, if you do it properly, think about it. You can get away with not yeah. spending yeah. too much money. But that's not what is what gets promoted. To no, times have changed. <laughs>
Uh, there, there's significantly too much marketing in the hobby rather than trading. And, you know, when I wrote the reefers code for Jake nine years ago, I can't believe it. It was, we, we said, sat down at Macna and talked about the old days then. That was nine years ago. We talked about the old days nine years ago and how things were and how we traded things, banked things, shared information. There were no secrets. There was no competition. I got a 500. Well, I have a 550 on tank. It wasn't like that. It was like, okay, I got this leather coral alive. Well, what did you do? Well, I got this bubble coral and half of it's dead. What did you do? We shared that kind of information because we were all trying to get everybody to be successful. We weren't competing with one another. And we didn't buy a frag for $500, hoping it would double in size and would break it up and sell two pieces for 250 <laughs> so it would break even. That wasn't our mindset. Okay, I got this 500, I got this $50 frag and it was this big. I can break a piece off and give it to Sanjay. So if I'm stupid enough to kill it, he keeps it alive. That was the, that was the code. That was how we, we kept things going without bankrupting each other. Yeah. And, and there, I mean, it, you know, it's a hobby yeah. or is it a business? There's a difference, right? I, I, when I got into it, I swore it's going to stay a hobby. It was never going to become a business. Yeah. I, I've never right? sold stuff. I'm, it, it's not a business. It's, what I do for fun, I mean, I worked in oncology for 40 years, and after watching that for 40 years, when I came home and started putzing around in the aquarium, didn't matter what happened, what I saw during the day, it was all out of my mind. I could relax. That's why it's a hobby, still a hobby to me. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, and I can, I can still count a lot of people that I know who've been around the hobby for a long time and they pretty much have similar mentality. Yeah. Right? Our old friends are our old friends for a reason because that's the one thing we share is that commonality of, you know, like whenever we post something on Facebook and I go, oh, that's a great looking, even if they have a freshwater tank. Well, you want some of my plants? Everybody still does the same kind of mindset from the old school. We know we're OG uh, reefers, but it, it's, <laughs> we, we still share that code. <laughs> I don't know about the G part. I'm the old Ori for the old. You are. You're older than me, Sanjay. So you know, <laughs> by six days. Six days. By wow. Six days. All right. You guys yeah. must be. Uh, six yeah. Days. Okay. Twins. I guess that's what you're saying, right? Twin sons of different mothers. Yeah. yeah. We're twins. All right, guys. I think uh, that's probably a good point to uh, to wrap it up. I, I want to thank you again so much for uh, for taking the time to. Uh, to join us and um, look forward to having you on uh, again down the, uh, the line when, when Sanjay's, I guess, back out of school in May probably is the best time to do this again, I would think, right? Yep. Um, yep. Anyway, thanks to everybody for, uh, for tuning in. And I also want to thank the, uh, the sponsor of the live stream, both Bulk Reef Supply and Ecotech Marine. And I want to uh, thank the folks that um, contributed via the Super Chat. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> Finally, a big thank you to Paul, who is the moderator, as well as the president of the Boston Reefer Society. Please join and support your local reefing clubs. They are so important to the hobby. Uh, I also want to let you know that all episodes of Rappling Reef Bomb are available as podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon. My next Rappin' with Reef Bum live stream will be on Thursday, December 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with Claude Schumacher from Fauna Marin. Oh. So that should be a good uh, discussion with, with Claude. Yeah. Um, Ask Claude about the ratios. I will. <laughs> I will absolutely do that. <laughs> <laughs> so that should be another great show. If you want to check. That's good. Claude's got a lot of yeah. knowledge. A lot of knowledge from experience and, you know, 
running his ICPs for a while. He's got a, he's, he's got yeah, a lot him, uh, of data. For the first time, I met him for That's the first time at Magna. And um, very interesting guy, so I'm looking forward to yeah. having him on. Yeah, you just can't stop him from talking. Yep. That's his only problem. <laughs> He's as bad as you. But I, I guess I gotta have to schedule some uh, an extended show for that uh, one next week. <laughs> um, All you'll have to say is hello, Claude. How are you doing? And you can take a snap. You can go have a. That'll, snack. that'll be an easy show then for me. That'll be an easy show. <laughs> be an easy show. <laughs> I've had right. I've had some guests on like that. <laughs> I once said I had uh, yeah. Meckley and, and Jake on at the same time. I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've known Claude for a long time. Actually, he, had, he invited me to Germany. He's the to single yeah. fend him. That was the first time I ever went to Germany for a aquarium trade show. Uh, I can't even remember what year it was. Oh, wow. It was a long time yeah. ago. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, what's the last thing I want to say? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, if you want to check out the full upcoming schedule of guests on, uh, you can do so at reefbum.com under the uh, YouTube section. We've got some <clears> great <throat> guests coming up in the next uh, couple of months, so check that out. Anyway, until then, folks, uh, be safe and be well, and we will see you next time. Adios. Happy holidays, everyone. All right. Thanks.